For most non-Christians, it's the deity of Christ that's hard to believe. It's that Christ is God that stumbles them and confuses them and causes them ultimately to reject Christianity. You think of atheists, for example. Atheists have no problem believing a man named Jesus was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago and that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. There's a very small contingency of atheists known as Jesus mythicists who believe he didn't exist at all. He's a total myth. But the vast majority of atheistic scholarship will declare that a man named Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, lived in Nazareth, and was crucified under Pontius Pilate, claiming to be the Messiah. As a matter of fact, Bart Ehrman is one of the most famous atheistic scholars of the day. And he has even said, this isn't a verbatim quote, but it's very, very close, that that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and crucified under Pontius Pilate is the most known historical fact of antiquity that we have. There's nothing more certain from that age, in that period. Atheists believe in Jesus. They just don't believe he's God. Muslims believe in Jesus. Muslims believe Jesus was born of a virgin, born of Mary, that he was a prophet, that he was a holy man. But Muslims do not believe that Jesus was God. The Jews today, modern Jews, they believe that a man named Jesus was born in Bethlehem, claimed to be the Messiah, and was crucified under Pontius Pilate. But they do not believe he was God. They do not believe he was deity, and therefore he did not rise after his death. So typically in our day and age, it's the deity of Christ that's difficult for people to understand. But believe it or not, throughout the history of the church, there have been several groups who have actually struggled with the exact opposite. There have been many, many factions throughout history that have had no problem accepting Christ's deity. But what they've struggled to understand and to accept is actually his humanity. Jesus is divine. He is a divine person. Many of these, all of these groups accepted that. But is he truly a human being? That's actually what they struggled with. And so that is the portion of the creed today that I want us to examine. That is what I want us to look at and understand, biblically speaking, where this creed is getting this language from as we seek to better understand what does it actually mean that Jesus Christ was a human being? What does that even mean? Well, as the creed states, the portion at least that we're reading, that Jesus is one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man. So if we begin there, both the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ are being put together in one person. And again, we're going to discuss that more in a different, in a later sermon in the series. But we are told that he is perfect in Godhead and yet perfect in manhood. So his manhood is perfect. He's not a quasi-man. He's not a half-human being, a partial human being, or just looks like a human being. He is perfectly human, truly man, as the text says. And then it goes on to say, of a rational soul and body, consubstantial with the Father, or some might say co-essential with the Father, according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us, according to the manhood, in all things like unto us, without sin. We're not going to focus on the deity today. We'll look at that next week. I want us to focus on what this portion of the creed states about the humanity of Christ, that Jesus Christ is perfect in manhood, that he is of a rational soul and body, and consubstantial with us in all things, with one exception, we are sinners, he is not. 
Uh, some of the more difficult phrase, phraseology in this to understand, the first one is, what, why does it go out of its way to say of rational soul and body? What does that mean, rational soul and body? Well, that is attempting to refute two of the most prevalent heresies that rose up in the early centuries of the church. One of them was a form of Gnosticism that was championed by a man named Marcion and his followers, Marcionism. And the Marcionites and many other Gnostics and many other heresy groups, they weren't the only ones who believed this, believed that Jesus did not have a true body. The, the word that was used to describe it is the word phantom, but a better uh, kind of more contemporary word that would make more sense to you would be like a hologram or an illusion. That Jesus looked like a person, like if your eyes, if you were there, you would think you're seeing a body, but there actually wasn't a body there. It was just like a heavenly hologram coming down from heaven. And so the creed makes sure to say that he is truly man with a true body. He had a real body just like you and me. He could be touched. He would eat. He would get tired. He could be crucified to a cross. He could be broken. He could be bruised. He had a real human body. But the other aspect, and what we're going to focus in on mostly today, was there was a heresy known as Apollinarianism. Apollinarianism, named after a man, Apollinarius. Now, this is not like Marcion. He's not as much of a bad guy as other heretics. He was a well-intentioned heretic. And if you think that's a bad thing to say, remember we looked at that last week, remember when we were going through Acts 15, and we saw that there were uh, Pharisees that the text referred to as believers. They were believers, but they got a crucial portion of the gospel wrong. They thought you had to be circumcised to be saved. So these weren't people who were actively trying to oppose the Christian movement. They wanted to be part of the Christian movement. They were just mistaken. That was Apollinarius. Apollinarius was a bishop. He loved the Christian church. He was part of the Christian church. He even was a passionate defender of the Nicene Creed, which came a couple hundred years before this. So he was trying to be a Christian, and, and while he was trying to figure this Christianity thing out, he made a grave mistake. He firmly believed that Jesus was God. The Nicene Creed was very clear that Jesus was God. So he was trying to understand then, how does God become man? What does that mean? How is that possible? What does that look like? And in his understanding, he ended up committing what we now refer to today as a heresy. And what Apollinarius affirmed, unlike the Gnostics, unlike Marcion, he affirmed that, yes, Jesus had a flesh and blood body. He had a real human body that you could touch, he could bleed, he granted all of that. But what he denied was that Jesus had a human soul and a human spirit and a human mind. Because Jesus didn't need a human soul, a human spirit, a human mind. He's already a person. He's already a mind. He's already a spirit. So Jesus only took on a human body. That's all he took on. There was a human body, but inside of that human body was a divine person. So you can almost think of it like there's a spirit controlling this fleshly body in the inside with controls. I like to call this view a, the God in, God in a costume. I like to call it the God in a costume. I've, this is kind of a weird analogy. I don't know why I've always used this analogy, but for some reason I have. Uh, when I was a kid, I had a friend who had, had all these silly Halloween costumes, big hot dog. He was, and one time he wore this big gorilla suit. And the surprising thing was it actually looked pretty realistic. This thing, from a, from a certain distance, this thing looked like a real gorilla, especially if the person in it was big enough. 
And, and you can imagine maybe some big guy putting on a gorilla suit and going to the zoo and entering the gorilla cage. He might be able to fool the people around that he's a gorilla. He looks like one. He may even be able to fool the gorillas. The gorillas inside that cage may even be a little suspicious, like, who's this new gorilla? But we would all know inherently that there's not a true gorilla there. There's just the outward appearance of a gorilla. But it doesn't actually share the same nature as a gorilla. And that is essentially what Apollinarianism argued, that this invisible spirit picked up this body and filled it like a ghost filling and started controlling the body. So Jesus is a human body with a divine spirit controlling the body. That's what Apollinarius accepted, and that's what this creed is rejecting. This creed is saying that Jesus took on a rational soul and body. Jesus did not just create and inherit into himself a physical body. He inherited himself a physical, well not a physical, but a real human soul as well. We'll, we'll, we'll show this from Scripture a little bit more. I want us to understand one other aspect of this. We've looked at what does that mean, rational soul and body. I think the other thing that causes people to stumble here is this word consubstantial. That's a word when we recite the phrase, it sounds kind of awkward. We don't really use that phrase or sometimes it's translated co-essential. What does it mean that he is consubstantial? Well, this, the, this just essentially means with substance. He is with our same substance. Christ has the same humanity as we do. If you think of humanity in large as a substance, humanity is a substance which is different from dogs, it's different from dirt, it's different from rocks. Humanity is a substance, and Christ has that substance with us. He shares the same humanity. He is consubstantial with us. The sub whatever substance you are, that's what Christ is. He shares that substance. But the creed makes sure to go on and tell us, but he didn't reject or become un-God when he did that. So he remains consubstantial with God, meaning whatever God is, Jesus is. To use a weird analogy, if you could put God in a microscope and study it and take out the DNA and then put Jesus in a microscope, you would get the same thing out. He is consubstantial with God. He is fully God. He is God in every way. But he is also, at the same time, consubstantial with us. If you were to study humanity and then study Jesus, you'd get the same thing. He shares humanity. But there is only one exception to this. He does not have sin. And by the way, that's not like a contradiction. That's not just a convenient caveat. Humanity, sin is inherent to our current condition as human beings, but it is not inherent to humanity. Otherwise, Adam and Eve were not perfect. If being a human equals being a sinner, then Adam and Eve were sinners before the fall. Humanity itself is not sinful. We have been plunged into a fall so that inevitably any person who's born from Adam is going to inherit sin from Adam, but they are inheriting that from a broken covenant. They are inheriting that from Adam. That's not baked into their humanity. Does that make sense? You can be a human being theoretically and not be a sinner. And that's good news because what does that mean? That means we can accept what the Bible says about heaven. When you die and go to heaven, are you going to be a sinner? No. Are you going to be a human? Yes. So Christ shares our humanity perfectly and he doesn't have to have sin to be fully human. You cannot have sin and still be fully human. As a matter of fact, it actually works the other way. To be sinful is to be less human. 
Sinfulness detracts from the image of God. It takes away from what God tended us to be. So if you were going to make a mistake, you should make it the other way. You should say, we're the ones who's not truly human. <laughs> but no, we are truly human and Jesus is truly human, but he is not a sinner. And so I want us to focus on this concept today. Did Jesus Christ take on more than just a human body, but a rational, sinless soul? Did Jesus have a human soul as well? Did he have a human mind as well? Did he have a human spirit as well? Or did he not need those things because he already was a rational spirit? Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 through 18 with me. As you're turning there, I think this is an important caveat to make. I'm not saying I sense this in our church, but it is not uncommon when Christians begin to really dive deep into some of the historical documentation, into some of the historical theology surrounding the Trinity and Jesus, that they resist it because they feel like we're just trying really hard to understand something we can't understand. They resist it. They feel like there's these, these, these old school philosophers, these eggheads, and you know how those annoying philosophers are. They're always trying to figure things out that we all know we can't figure out. So we resist, like, why are you trying to figure something out and just, why aren't you comfortable with mystery? Why is it okay to say we don't understand these things? And I want to assure you that the authors of the Nicene Creed, the authors of the Chalcedonian Creed, were very comfortable with mystery. The purposes of these statements were not at all to give you a comprehensive, perfect, complete understanding of the incarnation or the Trinity. So that's not what I'm trying to do today. You might leave today and say, man, that is a, a, I, that is a mystery. He told me this weird stuff I've never heard before. I don't know how that fits together. That's okay. I'm, we're not trying to take mystery away. But the fact remains is that throughout the history of the church, people have said things that the Bible simply doesn't affirm. The only purpose of the creed is to cut out wrong ideas. It's not to give you an exhaustive comprehension of Jesus. So don't think we're trying to, to understand mysteries here. We're just trying to take God's revelation and make as much sense of it as our feeble human minds can. But there is mystery to what we're saying here today. But there is something to be understood. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. If you would follow along with me, for these are the very words of God. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people." For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Verse 14 explicitly tells us that Jesus Christ shared in flesh and blood. This is a phrase that's used often throughout the New Testament, referring to humanity in terms of flesh or flesh and blood. Paul says that for flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, the famous Christmas verse in John chapter 1, the Word became flesh. 
Flesh is used often to speak of our physical humanity. But the reason it confuses people is because in English connotations, and what's a connotation of a word? A connotation is what a word implies. So it's not necessarily its definition, but it implies things beyond the definition. And when we in the English world talk about flesh, we're usually just talking not about the whole person, but just their skin and bones and muscle. That's all we're talking about. There's that famous line from Monty Python where it's a comedy movie. And this guy, this knight gets his arm cut off. And he says, it's just a flesh wound. Just a flesh wound. What's he saying? He's saying, my, like, my soul has not been impacted. My mind has not been impacted because my flesh is not my mind and my soul. My flesh is just my body. And so when people read in the Bible, Jesus took on flesh or Jesus shared in flesh and blood, it's easy to become an Apollinarian, to think that he just stepped into a body. But flesh and blood is a synecdoche. It symbolizes the whole humanity in Scripture. We're not going to prove it exhaustively, but I assure you, you cannot read flesh and blood throughout Scripture and only read it as just a physical body. It won't make sense. Flesh and blood is an equivalent phrase for all of humanity. Your physical components, but also your spiritual components, your soul and your mind. And here's how we know that. Because the text tells us in verse 14 that the children share in flesh and blood. So he's not just taking on our body. He actually has to become a child with us. He can't just look like us. He wants to become one of the children. Since we share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. So whatever we have, Jesus took on. He partook of full humanity so that he could be one of the children. By the way, that's why we didn't read it. But in verse 11, this is why Jesus refers to us as brother. Jesus is our brother. And you will sometimes find old hymns. You can find old hymns where you will sing about Jesus, my brother. And some people are uncomfortable with that because usually brother and sister is a term of equality. Like if I call you my brother in Christ and you call me your brother in Christ, we're, what we're saying is we're essentially equal. And so people are afraid to call Jesus brother because it, no, he's not my brother, he's my Lord, right? He's not my brother, he's my king. But how the text uses the term brother, Jesus is our brother. He's a fellow human being. He's, he's one of the children of God. He wanted to become like us so he partook of the same things. And he did this so that he could die and destroy the devil and deliver us. And then notice what verse 16 says. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Throughout the book of Hebrews, Jesus is often being compared to angels. And there's this emphatic emphasis that he's not an angel. And what that leads most interpreters to, uh, to suspect is that maybe some of the theories around Jesus as people were trying to make sense of Jesus was that he looked like a human, but we know that angels can look like humans. Remember the angels that came down in Sodom and Gomorrah? No one knew they were angels. They all thought they were humans. So Jesus looked like a human, but he was actually this really great super angel. And so the book of Hebrews goes out of its way to show us that Jesus is not an angel. And so here, angels and humanity are distinct. Angels are not human beings. You need to understand that. In theology, angels are not like just human beings with wings as they're portrayed in movies. They're not just like human beings with extra powers. It's, they're an entirely separate creation. 
God has made the organic world. He has made the spirit world. He has made humans. He has made animals. He has made angels. They are their own category of being. They are not humans. This is why it's important for Christians to dispel what used to be a popular notion. I don't know how popular it is nowadays, but sometimes people will talk when a loved one dies about them becoming angels. We want to dispel that. You don't lose your humanity when you die. You don't become an angel. You will never be an angel. They're separate creation. By the way, I would argue you don't really want to be an angel. Right now, the angels are above us, but the Bible tells us that in the resurrection, we will rule over them, that we are actually greater than them. Not right now, but we will be. We will be glorified greater than the angels. And if you end up being one of those angels that fall, there's no chance of redemption for you. You don't want want to be an angel. We're blessed to be humans in the image of God. So angels and human beings are separate, and it is specifically implied here in verse 16 that Christ did not become an angel because they weren't the ones who needed help. They are not the ones who needed to be saved. Who did he come to save? Not angels, but who? He helps the offspring of Abraham, hearkening us back to the Abrahamic covenant. So what's being implied in verse 16? Jesus is not just some body. He didn't just create some body and fill it. He had to be born in Abraham's line the same way every person he came to save was born. It is being compared. Jesus had to partake of the same flesh and blood that we have, the same things, and he had to be born of Abraham's descendants, just like the rest of Israel was. But if none of that is clear enough, verse 17 really drills it home. Look at what verse 17 says. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So Jesus had to become perfectly, fully, completely human. And the reason he had to do that is because if he wasn't truly human, he could not actually represent humanity. Right? Jesus is the God-man. He's the mediator between God and man. And the reason he fulfills that role is because he is both God and man. He can represent God, but he can also represent man. But if Jesus just stepped into a body, he doesn't know what it's like to be a human being. He doesn't know your struggles. Because part of your difficulty as a human being is not just wrapped up in your flesh, but in your soul, in your will, in your mind, in your spirit. If Jesus just simply filled up a body, put on a human costume, he would be able to empathize with some of our weaknesses. Like Jesus would know us how bad a stub toe hurts. But he wouldn't know discouragement. God is not discouraged. He wouldn't know any of these, he wouldn't know doubt. He wouldn't know these things. The text, by the way, tells us explicitly, he gives us an example. What does it say in verse 18? For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those are being tempted. You want to know why that is so important? Because does anybody happen to have James 1.13 memorized? James 1.13 explicitly tells us, When you are tempted, do not blame God, for God does not tempt, nor can God be tempted. God cannot be tempted. So if Jesus merely is the God who filled the body, and he only has a divine soul, a divine spirit, no human soul, Jesus can stub his toe, but he can't be tempted. 
And if he can't be tempted, then he can't really represent you because he doesn't really know what it is to be you. Jesus didn't just take on a body. He took on a human soul. Jesus became capable of being tempted so that he could truly say, I know what it is like to be human, as verse 17 says, in every respect. I don't just know what it's like to have a body and to be hungry and tired and hurt. I know what it's like to have a soul, to be tempted and sorrowful. He was made like us in every single respect. Now, there's one important qualification. Turn over to chapter 4, verse 15. Chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. See, Jesus took on a humanity capable of being tempted, but unlike us, he never gave in to those temptations. He is perfect. He is the new Adam. He did what Adam failed to do. Adam was a perfect man who, when tempted, failed. Jesus is the new Adam to create a new human race, a new mankind. And when he was tempted as a man, he did not fail. But notice the text says, in order for him to be tempted, we have to have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Let that sink in for a moment. The humility of Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, the all-powerful one, took on a state of being that can be probably referred to as weak. The omnipotent God, the all-powerful God, who can move mountains and create galaxies, became weak. He became associated with our weakness. God cannot be weak. He had to take on full humanity to experience weakness. In order for Jesus to be fully human, he needed more than a body. He needed a rational soul, a rational body. By the way, there are lots of ways we can confirm this outside of Hebrews 2. We're going to look at just one of them. But I, I want to just read something interesting to you. This comes from Psalm 49.20. Psalm 49.20 says this, Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Do you see the way that poetically juxtaposes two different kinds of flesh? Animals have flesh and blood. Beasts have flesh and blood. We have flesh and blood, but why are we not animals? Because we have reason. We have understanding. We have souls and spirits. If Jesus took on a body, but he did not take on a soul and a spirit, he could have just become a beast. He could have just taken on the body of an animal. If all he needed was flesh and blood, he could have just been a beast. But there's an important distinction between beasts and humans. Jesus did not become a beast he became a human being, which means he took on human reasoning, a human soul, a human spirit. And, and, and when we accept this, when we affirm this, there's an element of mystery here, no doubt. But it helps us. It helps us make sense of a lot of other Bible passages that people love to point to to try to take away our faith and confidence in the person of Jesus. Let me give you one of those. Turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Verse 
forgive me. I think I have the wrong reference here in my notes, but I can find it. Or, no, I didn't. I just was in the wrong place. Luke chapter 2, verse 52. This is the only account we have of Jesus sort of as a young boy. Luke chapter 2 chronicles this brief story of Jesus as a very, very young boy. Most of the gospel narratives, you've got the birth of Jesus, and then you've got full-grown man ministry of Jesus. We have one little account of Jesus as a young child, and this is the conclusion of that account. Look at verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Let me ask you a question. If Jesus is God, as you Christians say he is, how does the God who, know every, who knows everything increase in wisdom? If you say Jesus is God, as you Christians say he is, then God is perfect. How does the perfect God grow in stature? If you say Jesus and the Father are equal and that the Father loved him from eternity equally, then how is it that Jesus was able to grow in God's love? The omnipotent God here is weak. The all-knowing God here is learning. How does God learn? How does Jesus grow in wisdom and maturity and favor? Because he took on a human mind. In the one person of Christ is a human mind capable of learning and growing. And even in that human mind, in order for him to be fully human, there was a level of limitation to it, which is why one of the hardest, most difficult Bible passages for every Christian to understand is when Jesus is prophesying the end times and talking about the return of the Son of Man, who does Jesus say doesn't know when the Son of Man will return? Himself. Not even the Son knows that. How does the all-knowing God learn? How does the all-knowing God not know something? The people who ask those questions are people who fail to understand what Christians historically have believed about the Incarnation. That Jesus did not just take a divine mind and fill a body. He took on a human mind. He took on a human soul. Capable of learning and growing. By the way, you know what's my favorite example of this? This is why Jesus was able to be a baby. Uh, the Quran has this really interesting lie about Jesus. The Quran says that when Jesus was born, the moment he came out of Mary's womb, he started preaching the gospel. If you're an Apollinarian, that makes sense. Because if I'm just like a spirit and I float inside a baby's body, I can control the baby's body and I can talk and I can do things that the baby wouldn't be able to do. Why wasn't Jesus walking around as a six-month-old preaching the gospel, telling people what to do like the Quran says he was? You know why? Because he didn't know how to talk. And how come he didn't know how to talk? I thought he's the all-knowing God. Because he became truly human. He had a human soul that interacted with his human mind in the same way that my son's soul interacts with his human mind at that age. And he's too young to think and talk and reason. So was Jesus. Now again, there's a mystery here. You see, we're not trying to take away mystery. So how does the divine... Nature and the human nature, how do they come together? We're going to talk a little bit more about that, but there's a mystery here. But there's something we can affirm biblically is that Jesus took on full humanity, not just a body. Consubstantial with us in every respect, reasonable soul, reasonable body. But there's one other text. I, I may have proved this to you sufficiently to some degree by now, but there's one text we just have to see because this to me 
is the humanity of Jesus Christ on full display. Turn with me to a beautiful text, Mark chapter 14. And I only picked Mark because it was the briefest account, but the Garden of Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives, the betrayal of Jesus is, is in every gospel, including John's, which means it's very important. Mark chapter 14. Let's begin in verse 32. This is after the Lord's Supper and after Jesus prophesied that Peter would deny him. After all this, verse 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John. And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch and go a little farther. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. I want us to stop there. I want us to see the full humanity of Jesus Christ on display here. This is right before the crucifixion. Right before the most horrific, evil thing the world has ever or will ever see. We are, the, we are on the precipice of literally nothing worse. Jesus was about to endure something. That you, can, you can't make up a scenario that's worse than what was about to happen. And he's on the precipice of this moment. So what does he do? He tells his disciples what? That he is greatly distressed and troubled. I submit to you, those are words that cannot be spoken of the essence of the Godhead. God in heaven, watching over the world, does not get troubled and distressed. God is never worried. God is never afraid. God is never depressed. God is never anxious. He is incapable of those feelings. Jesus is God, yet here he is. I'm nervous. I'm afraid. He can only do that if he has a human soul. But even more than that, he tells them what? Explicitly, my, verse 34, he said to them, my soul is sorrowful. I am, I am in so much sorrow, I want to die. He has a human soul, he's troubled, and then here's the real kicker. What does he pray? He prays, Abba Father, all things are possible from you. Remove this cup from me. Here we have, I want to be careful with this language. Let me qualify it. But here we have Jesus expressing a different will than his Father. Jesus says, I want this to happen, but if you don't, I'm okay with it. Jesus in this moment has a separate will from God. Now, his will is not at odds. He gladly embraces the Father's will. Your will be done, not my will be done. So he's not sinning. He's not fighting with God. He's not rejecting God's will. That's not what I'm saying. But his will is distinct from the Father's here. I've got a will. You've got a will. I want to do this. You want to do this. I will submit my will to your will. 
That doesn't happen in the Godhead. In the Godhead, there is one divine will that all three persons share perfectly. Jesus here has a separate will, a separate soul, a separate mind. Better yet, a human will, a human soul, a human mind. He was not just God in a body. We are not Apollinarians. Why does this matter? Let's conclude with that. Why should I care about this hair splitting? Okay, Jesus was fully human, fully consubstantial with us, reasonable soul and body. I don't want to learn those things. I just believe, okay, Jesus took on flesh. He was in that body somehow, some way, and he died for my sins. Why is that not enough? Why am I being so picky? In conclusion, I want to explain, this is why this matters. What Jesus did not assume, he cannot heal. Let me say that again. Jesus cannot heal what he did not assume. What he did not take on, he cannot heal. What do I mean by that? Jesus did a whole lot more than just come to take care of a legal debt on our behalf. Now, he did do that. He did do that. It's very important. A very, very crucial element of the gospel is the forgiveness of sins. And I'm not trying to downplay that. But the Protestant Reformed world, I think, not just Reformed, the Protestant world, primarily because of our, our, our history with Roman Catholicism, we have focused so much on Christ's purpose and forgiveness and how are we forgiven and how are we justified that we tend to take a little too myopic view of Jesus' mission. Jesus did not just come to pay a price for you. He came as the new Adam to fix and restore and glorify humanity. Right? Jesus doesn't just come down, pay your fine, you're welcome, see you guys later. He came to do more than just pay our fine. As a matter of fact, paying our fine was really just a necessary means to the greater goal. And that greater goal was to restore humanity, to take humanity and bring us to that place that God intended us to be. This is what Adam was supposed to do. Adam was put in the garden. He was supposed to be perfect, to obey God, and God would have glorified humanity. He would have rewarded humanity. But Adam failed. He sinned. And so Christ came, as the book of Romans says, to be the new Adam, the second Adam, so that Christ could do what Adam failed to do and then take humanity into its glory. He took what Adam broke and threw into the dirt, and he said, I'm going to go fix that. I'm going to restore it and glorify it and bring us into the full, perfect humanity. That is why Jesus, after his resurrection, demonstrated a glorified body. And, and Paul elaborates on this in 1 Corinthians 15, that our humanity in its broken state is incapable of living forever in heaven. And so that's why when we die, we are resurrected, as Paul says, with glorified bodies. They're glorified. They're redeemed. That's why when you get to heaven one day, you're not going to be tempted sin and then start this process over again. You're going to be glorified in your humanity. And so here's how all this comes into mind. Every part of you is broken, not just your body. Your soul is broken and tainted with sin. Your mind is broken and tainted with sin. Your desires are broken and tainted with sin. So Christ came to take what is broken and glorify it and redeem it. If he didn't take on a human mind, he didn't glorify a human mind. He didn't fix a human mind. He didn't redeem a human mind. And that means you're taking the same broken, sinful mind into glory with you. Because no one fixed it. 
If Christ didn't assume it, He didn't heal it. You know what? A world without cancer would be nice. A world without broken bones would be nice. But humanity has a lot more problems than broken bones and cancer. We are not just interested in Jesus fixing our bodies. We want Him to fix humanity. To redeem and glorify us in every respect. Cyril, one of the main men that was influential at the Council of Chalcedon, I want to quote what he says. As God, Jesus wished to make that flesh which was held in the grip of sin and death evidently superior to sin and death. He made it his very own and not soulless, not without a soul as some have said, but rather animated with a rational soul. And thus he restored flesh to what it was in the beginning. In short, he took what was ours to be his very own so that we might have all that was his. And I would say his language is not strong enough here. Jesus did not restore us to the garden. He took, he's going to take us beyond the garden. He's going to not just restore, but to glorify. And as Cyril says here, Jesus took our weakness. He took what we had so that he could redeem it, and now we get what he has. He took what we have so that we can have what he now has. Or as he says it, he took what was ours to be his very own so that we might have all that was his. If you want to be fully glorified like the Lord Jesus Christ, then he needed to be fully human. Not a partial human, body only. Not an incomplete human or a phantom just looks like a human but isn't actually a human. No, to be our high priest to redeem us, he had to be like us in every respect except for sin. One more quote and then we will pray from Cyril. Indeed, the mystery of Christ runs the risk of being disbelieved precisely because it is so incredibly wonderful. For God was in humanity. He who was above all creation was in our human condition. The invisible one from on high was made visible in the flesh. He who is from the heavens and from on high was in the likeness of earthly things. The immaterial one could now be touched. He who is free in his own nature came in the form of a slave. He who blesses all of creation became accursed. He who is all righteousness was numbered among the transgressors. Life itself came in the appearance of death. And all this followed because the body which tasted death belonged to no other but to him who is the Son of God by nature. <laughs> 